At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Well, hello and welcome to uh, another Drug Science Podcast. My name is David Nutt and tonight I have with me Deborah Mash, who is a pioneer of innovative research in addiction. And to me and many others, she's known as the uh, the lady who is taking Ibogaine from the, uh, I suppose, from the field into the clinic. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you. So I'd like to you know, kick off these conversations by giving people a chance to tell us a little bit about their background. And uh, I presume you're a pharmacologist by original training, were you? Or tell us a bit about how you got into science in the first case. Yes, I identify myself as a neuroscientist, neuropharmacologist. I did an undergrad, undergraduate degree in, in psychobiology back before neuroscience was a formal discipline. And from there, I advanced to do my PhD in pharmacology and began working in the field of Alzheimer's disease, working in the cholinergic nervous system. And after I completed my PhD, I spent uh, a few years up at Harvard Medical School at Beth Israel Hospital in the impressive division of uh, the late Norman Geshwin, Dr. Geshwin, sort of the pioneer, one of the most brilliant neurologists, behavioral neurologists, and working in the laboratory of Dr. Marcel Meslum. And what were you doing there? After that, I was doing cholinergic nervous was that Alzheimer's too? Yes. So I, I um, you know, when I, when I started, I actually was working in the cholinergic nervous system before they cloned the receptors. So we published, uh, my dissertation was published in Science Magazine, and that uh, publication got me into Harvard, and, and the rest was kind of history. But my original NIH grants were all in the field of Alzheimer's disease. So I traveled back from Boston to Miami because at the time I was married to a young attorney and he had passed the Florida bar and the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine had had made an offer to me to join the Department of Neurology. And I was a PhD in the department and there weren't that many PhDs that were on tenure tracks, but I was invited to come in on a tenure track. I was actually the first woman hired on a tenure track in that department. And there I was, and I set up my laboratory and got my first NIH grants in place and was working diligently with several really impressive collaborators and working on nerve growth factor and, and um, again, continuing it, looking at the cholinergic dysfunction and the disease. And at the time, things were changing up in Miami. So you recall the Miami was on the front end loading of the cocaine epidemic. We because of our location and the transshipment of cocaine through the Bahamian corridor, Miami was hit hard. And we got hit not only with powder cocaine, 
you know, Miami was the Miami vice capital. So every, you couldn't go to a party, you couldn't go to a club, you couldn't go anywhere in Miami where there, you know, cocaine would have come out restaurants and bathrooms, people were, you know, hitting cocaine. And of course with that came the deaths and the emergency room admissions and crack exposed infants and Miami, we really felt it on the first wave. And one of the other things that I had done is that I'm a brain banker. I set up the University of Miami Brain Endowment Bank, which is one of the largest post-mortem collections of human brains patients, people, family members who donated the brains of loved ones to support medical research. And at the time when cocaine was showing up in the medical deaths were showing up in the medical examiner's office, I got looped into the addiction space because an old friend of mine from the Center for Disease Control had come down to Miami and they were trying to figure out why people were dying with recreational blood levels of cocaine in blood. And someone said, well, you know, they ought, you ought to look at the brains of these people. And the medical examiner said, hmm, well, we don't really have anyone interested in that. And one of my colleagues said, well, there's this woman, Deborah Mash, and she has a brain bank. And it turned out that my colleague from the CDC knew me from undergraduate days. And so the rest was history. And it was really that change up. I wrote my first NIDA grant. And not had never published in the field of addiction at all. Addiction neurobiology was not my area. But I was so intrigued by these, you know, what was the effect of cocaine on the brain and behavior that I thought, well, this is very important. And we have a collaboration with the medical examiner's department so we can have these brains donated for research. And at the same time, we were seeing cocaine psychosis, this very strange behavioral anomaly of cocaine-related excited delirium, which today is a very controversial topic in and of itself. But we had these cases. So, you know, there we were in the middle of the cocaine epidemic, and I changed gears, and I write my first grant to NIDA, and I fund it on a first submission. And you and I both know that getting grants funded on a first submission is not a, a usual occurrence, but there I was. I had my grant. Yeah, that was an emergency in a similar way to, to COVID's a bit of an emergency. You know, that was such a tsunami of cocaine deaths and, and, and the rising use. I mean, it was a, it was pretty vital that people started to research it. So absolutely, <laughs> you saw that that was needed and uh, well done. Well, thank you for that. I mean, we, we did. We, we really changed gears. And what was interesting is that we... You know, in the first year of the grant, in the first year of funding, my when we got the money and I sat around the table and I assembled the team and I said, all right, NIDA's given us this money. What exactly we are we doing with this money? You know, we need to address this problem, as you, as you pointed out. This was an urgency and we needed to kind of hit the deck running. So my colleague uh, said, well, Deborah, you ought to look at coca-ethylene. And I said, coca what? Coca what? And he goes, you know, it's the metabolite that's formed when you drink and use cocaine in combination. And I said, no, I don't, I don't know what that is. Draw it on the blackboard. So he sketched up the molecule and I said, can you make it for me? And he said, yeah, I can, I can synthesize some. And we took it to the test tube and we presented at the Society for Neuroscience. And I was invited to do a press conference. We were the Miami Vice metabolite, cocaine and booze, lethal mix. Yeah, actually, on that point, yeah, some of the, our, um, our listeners won't 
be familiar with to tell a little bit more about what it is then is is this a it's when cocaine and ethanol fuse to make a new molecule is that right yeah it's a trans exactly david it's a transesterification so cocaine and ethanol in the body will form this third molecule and it's the ethyl homologue of cocaine and what we were able to demonstrate not only we were able to demonstrate in the test tube that it had a high affinity for the the cocaine binding site in the brain, the dopamine transporter, but it also, if, if you administered it, uh, you could demonstrate that it that it was more lethal. And so we went on from there, and we did some epidemiology studies, and we did some tox testing, and you know, cadaver deaths. And we had this really nice story, and and we go up to the Society for Neuroscience. They pick it for a press conference, and. It was amazing because I was a, a new person at NIDA. No one knew really who I was. I was an unknown. And now here I am. And in the first year of funding, we're getting national recognition. And this is really what leads us to Ibogaine, this little experience of working on this epidemic because uh-huh. we get national recognition. I go in there and I, it was the old days when, you know, you had slides and I go into the, the press room. Oh, yes. And I put my little uh, carousel on the thing and I look at all the reporters and I go, let me tell you a detective story. And everybody's pen goes to paper. And we were written up in Science Magazine again as the Miami Vice Metabolite. We were written up in JAMA. We hit the cover of, I'm not making this up, every newspaper in the land. People were contacting me for interviews. I mean, it was a ridiculous amount of press. But in the context of this and all this media, three things happened. I like to say good things happen in threes. And the first was that the president of the University of Miami, the late Tad Foote, invited me to speak at the Coalition for a Drug-Free America. You remember that in those days very well. That was the just say no to drugs time. That's not some was it Bush? I can't remember which which president's wife was driving it. Yeah, that was Reagan. Was Reagan. So there we were, and of course your your university president asked you to speak. You go, so I go, and I give you know my talk about co-caffeine and the, the cocaine epidemic in Miami Dade and everything that was going on with that. And this gentleman comes. I was surrounded after my talk. Many people had come up to the podium to ask me questions. And there was a black gentleman who walked up to me and he was very animated and he wanted to tell me about this drug from Africa that could be used to wean people off of heroin, cocaine, and other hard drugs. And I listened to him for a few minutes and I really, I had no idea what he was talking about. And I think I was rather abrupt with him. Like he was so animated and really wanted me to understand what he was telling me. And I had never heard of it and I thought it sounded far out. And so I was, I was abrupt. And, but that was the first time I had heard about Ibogaine. The second time I heard about Ibogaine, I went, I was presenting again. I was invited to give a, a lecture at, at the College of the Problems of Drug Dependence. And I went in there and I gave my talk again on co-caffeine. And I was getting really sick of listening to myself talk about, you know, cocaine and ethanol mix. And I remember going, sitting in the back of the room. I, I was unprepared and I had my meeting, my program, and I, it was a session on cocaine, so I said, well, I'll go sit in the back of the room and look at my book. And I sit in the back, and this professor from Albany, Stan Glick, is up there, and he's feeding this substance from Africa to rats, and they stop drug-taking behavior. And I thought, oh, 
that's that, that's that same molecule. And the third thing that happened was when I came back from that meeting and I had an old um, answering machine in my office and I played the tape and it was Howard Lutzoff, the late Howard Lutzoff, who made the seminal discovery of Ibogaine and reported on it, calling me because he wanted to use our work on cocaethylene to support a polydrug dependency patent that he was filing on Ibogaine. Now I've heard it three times and I said, Howard Lutzoff, you're the man behind Ibogaine? And he came down to Miami. I said, bring your data. I want to see how does it work? What's the mechanism of action? What do you know about it? And he said, he goes, okay, I'm going to come to Miami and I'm going to show you. So he flew into Miami and he came in with literally, David, a box of papers and they were kind of junky papers and they just newspaper clippings and it wasn't data like you and I are used to looking at. And but he did something. He invited me to go to Amsterdam and see it with my own eyes. And I did. Oh, they were using it. They were using it in Amsterdam. I didn't realize that. It was being used as a therapy there, was it? Yes. They were running an underground railroad of addicts helping addicts. And it was ICASH, the International Coalition of Addicts Self-Help and the Dutch Addicts Self-Help Movement. Uh-huh. I didn't know. So you went to Amsterdam. Right. I did. A lot going on there as well. I brought a medical, yes, and I brought a medical doctor with me, of course. And so a colleague, an MD, PhD, who was in my department, Juan, Dr. Juan Sanchez Ramos, I said, Juan, will you go with me to Amsterdam? I want to see this. And we got out, I bought tickets and we flew over to Amsterdam and we stayed in residence with them. And I saw three young men take Ibogaine and go through this transformative experience. And I couldn't believe it. I saw a young man who was on over 100 milligrams of methadone, chipping on heroin, coke, and benzos, take a single dose of Ibogaine, and in less than 30 hours, go to the bathroom, shower, shave, clean up, eat a big meal, and sit down across the table and talk to me about what was going to be different in his life. And another young man who was a musician, a very talented Puerto Rican gentleman from New York who was banging back a lot of heroin, really hardcore use. And he had the same experience, no withdrawals, no desire to go walking out the door and getting high. And again, thinking about what he needed to do to change his life so he wouldn't fall back in the hole. And the third one was freebase, was a, a son of an Orthodox rabbi from New York who had been freebasing cocaine. And he had the similar experience where his d desire to go out and get high with coke was diminished and profoundly so. And I couldn't, you know, <laughs> seeing is believing, right? You know, but it, it was so, I will go to the grave with that experience because that is what has fueled my interest in this ever since is that what I wanted to know, why, why would a single oral dose of Ibogaine be able to reset this all this wreckage and completely diminish a very you know bring about a, a gentle detoxification no you know none of the acute withdrawal symptoms chills diarrhea vomiting nausea diarrhea muscle cramps all the anxieties severe depression the post acute withdrawal symptoms the anhedonia all of this was just gone, diminished, not unseen. How could this be? 
And so I couldn't really do any research there because although they had a medical doctor who were a psychiatrist who had worked with Holocaust survivors who was there, Dr. Bashan, he wasn't, there was no cardiac monitors. There were no IV poles. There were no blood pressure monitors. I mean, this was not the setting that, you, you know, when I arrived there, I thought I had actually lost my mind because this wasn't really a good medical setting. But I had an idea. I said, maybe there's an active metabolite. And I asked, I asked the young man, I said, can we collect urines? And so I did. So I got one of uh, Lutzoff's associates to get me dry ice and a styrofoam container and urine cups. And we collected urine and I brought it back to Miami and I gave it to my same. <laughs> you brought your souvenir from Amsterdam. I brought it back. Most people bring urine. <laughs> I, froze, I froze back a bunch of urine and I put it in the box. I got it. I went to the airport there and at uh, Schiphol and I gave people money and I said, make sure that box gets on the plane. And that box got to Miami. I got the box off the plane, drove right to the uh, medical examiner's office to the toxicology division, handed them the box and said, show me the metabolite. And that's how we identified noribogaine. So what made you think there might be metabolite? I mean, you know, was it a hunch? David, I had just worked on a metabolite, co-gathling. Oh, I see. Aha, uh -huh. right. I've got it. So it was, yes, extrapolating from the cocaethylene. So, yeah, so the, you found this metabolite. Well, that's, so that's some desmethyl ibogaine. Is that what it is? Yes. Yeah, it's the, we figured out pretty quickly that it is an active metabolite of ibogaine. So whereas ibogaine is cleared from the blood, within you know less than 24 hours, ibogaine is, is gone, cleared out of, the, out of the blood, nor ibogaine is elevated. So in the days after ibogaine, noribogaine is elevated in blood and it lags behind the ibogaine because it goes through the liver and is, you know, it's a first pass metabolism. So we thought, well, maybe some of the beneficial after effects of ibogaine are due to the active metabolite. Yes. Well, that's very sensible. Yeah, quite incredible. So then you went off to, uh, and that's quite a few years, you've been searching noribogaine for a long time then now both molecules for a very long time so that was 1993 and i wow. came back to the university of miami and i had a wonderful um, my dean of research dr robert rubin incredible dean and mentor and just uh, just a wonderful human being so i came to him and i had a good reputation at the medical school i wasn't you know i had a couple of home runs and my funding was very good so i went to the university of miami and i said you know we need to submit, we have to test this. Ibogaine needs to be tested in an academic medical center. So, you know, my, my naivete. And so we have to submit an academic investigator initiated IND to the FDA and we're going to do it. So I had to go up in front of the university and get permission. Then I had to go up in front of the insurance carriers. And of course, we have to pay for this. We have to find the money. And so I go, all right, so I'm, I go up to NIDA. And NIDA had invited me to give a, a talk on co-gathlene again. And so while I was up there, the head of the medication development division, Dr. Charles Grzynskis and Frank Vachi, the deputy, I talked to them afterwards and I said, University of Miami is going to submit to the FDA. We're going to submit an IND. And I, David, I swear to God, I think when I turned around and went to walk out of the room that both of them laughed at me and thought, you know, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> You're going to do that. Okay. 
but I did, undeterred. Little did they know. Little did they know you. <laughs> you know, so I submitted it, and we went up before the Drug Abuse Advisory Committee. So these were the same people at the same time that Rick Doblin was going in with the, you know, with his early work at MAPS. So there were few, few of us. I mean, we got permission from the FDA in 1993 to put to do the phase one study of Ibogaine. And at that time, of course, I was proposing that we would do it in uh, cocaine dependent patient volunteers. And again, the same group came at us and we got permission actually we put our protocol in. Uh, the IND went up and our, our clinical trial protocol goes in and my medical safety officer, Dr. Dan Spiker, you know, 30 days, they give you the call, right? So I'm, I'm sitting here at my desk and day 30, we get the phone call from Dr. Spiker. And I ran and got Juan Sanchez Ramos, who was our clinician on the study. And we sat there on the phone with them and they said, we're going to let you go. We're going to let you do it once you make a few changes, but you're good to go. And I hung up the phone and I couldn't believe it. I said, oh my God, they approved this? Wow. And so, okay, so now we're going to do it. And long story short, a few months later, we got a phone call from Dan and he said, Deborah, have you put Ibogaine into humans? I said, Dr. Spiker, we're still, you know, getting ready to start the trial. No. And he said, well, I'm going to, I need to tell you something. There is a group of investigators at Johns Hopkins and they said that Ibogaine causes cerebellar toxicity. And that was George Riccardi's colleague, Mark Molliver. Oh, right. Yes. Okay. I'm vaguely remembering that now. Yeah, it was kind of the same strategy, you know, raise the neurotoxicity flag, slow things down. But Ibogaine is not a recreational drug. Ibogaine is a therapy. Yeah, Ibogaine is not a recreational drug. No one is taking Ibogaine in a, in a dance hall scene. But, you know, I mean, it's used for one for the single purpose. Well, that's right. But you highlight a very important, important problem, which is it, the groups who spend their lives finding problems with drugs, they find problems with drugs. Because I don't think the cerebellar damage turned out to be of any relevance, did it? Or was it meaningful? No, you know, but there it did appear recently flagged up again when Senator Schatz and Congresswoman Alexandria Olivia Cortez raised the issue about to the Congress and to the Senate about increasing funding for advancement and testing of psychedelic medicines. And they not only included psilocybin and MDMA, but they also mentioned Ibogaine. And probably from the press office at NIDA, I assume that this that's just the group that wrote the uh, reply back to the senator and the congresswoman, uh, named this issue of neurotoxicity with, with Ibogaine. But, you know, there has never been any, yes, there is cerebellar ataxia early after drug administration, of course, when you're at the height of the visionary, the oniric effects of Ibogaine, you really can't walk around, you're, you know, you're down for the count at that time. But we did, you know, I was in a neurology department, so we did for full neurologic assessments pre and post, we did bedside posturography, we looked at tremor analysis, I had wonderful neurology colleagues, and we did all that. And we could demonstrate nothing, you know, except a transient ataxia. So, 
there was really nothing there. And I had also done some monkeys. I had been down in St. Kitts working at a primate colony on an NIAAA funded study, and I got my hands on some primates. So we did repeat dosing in the monkey, and we showed that there at the therapeutic levels, there was no cerebellar toxicity. And that was independently reviewed by neuropathology colleagues at the medical school. And then last but not least, is that there was a young woman who died from natural causes. Remember, I had the brain bank. So some of Lux's yep, yep. people would come through Miami, They were, and we would do pre and post evaluations on them. And this, when they would sit and we did MRI scans and whatnot, I, I would talk to the young people about, you know, you should donate your brain, your ibogonauts, and God forbid if something happens to you, you know, your brain would be very important to be donated. And lo and behold, one did pass away and I got her brain was donated and I was there at the time of the autopsy. We brought the brain back and we submitted that information to the FDA and there was no toxicity. And she had taken Ibogaine actually more than one time with Howard and uh, she had used Ibogaine, detoxified, stayed clean and sober for a year. And then a year later, she relapsed and she went back for Ibogaine. So she had more than one dose and her brain had no toxicity. So how much did it set you back, that scare, that cerebellar scare, a few years? No, it slowed us down, David, absolutely slowed us down. And in fact, I went into the, before, I, I did an open an open hearing at the FDA, and the FDA, that was a mistake too, you know. I, I thought everyone would want to know about this. You know, I just, you know, I was so seeing as believing, I wanted to share this with everyone. But at the time, buprenorphine was just, coming down the pipeline and there was a you know move to repurpose buprenorphine which is now a multi-billion dollar industry in our country and and here i am with this you know transformative oneric medicine that could you know take people to abstinence nobody really wanted to see this you know i was very i have to say very naive but anyway the undeterred you know, I come from an aspirational blue collar family, so it takes a lot to knock me down. But we went up in front of the Drug Abuse Advisory Committee and in the middle of the meeting when Molliver, Dr. Molliver hit me with his uh, cerebellar toxicity and he was showing angry astrocytes. This is one of the two cell types in the brain and astrocytes can be a marker of neuroplasticity, but they can of course also be a marker of toxicity and degeneration. So he's showing this and everyone is, you know, clicking and the newspaper reporters are writing up and everybody, oh my God, the neurotoxicity. So I went over to Mark and he had no quantitative data or anything. And I went to him and I, I whispered in his ear in the break and I said, Mark, are you sure about your data? Because, you know, people are dying from cocaine. Yeah, quite. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, Mark, please. And of course, you know, he had a contract from NIDA and, you know, people have conflicting as you know very well, and yeah. as I know very well, people have conflicting interests. But we got past it. So I put it into a closed door session. I'm not even sure I knew how to do that, but I did. I closed the session and I went in there and I came out with approval in 93 to test. And in 1995, I went back before the FDA again in a closed door session. FDA was always highly collaborative and helpful. Next time I went, I went in, I had Charlie Grzynskis sitting by my side. And actually, a week ago, I was on the phone with Dr. Bajinskis. He runs a private consulting group, and uh, he's helping me today. So, you know, never say never. You keep going, right? 
Well, that's right. I mean, you're talking 30 years, but you are, you're making considerable progress. So, you know, tell us where we've gotten to now. Yeah. So fast forward. So in 2017, well, in 2010, I actually, because I couldn't fund the Ibogaine study. So we had FDA permission, just the cliff notes on this. When we had FDA permission to go forward, FDA extremely collaborative and helpful. And they, and they always have been, by the way. And, you know, but I couldn't fund it. And Howard Lutzhoff held the intellectual property, so I couldn't raise funds. And I couldn't, I wrote a NIDA grant and NIDA didn't want to fund it. And then NIDA was going to put their own uh, clinical program together around Ibogaine and they had convened an external panel and they basically, the panel split. So the industry group, the, some of the academics thought it should be tested and the industry group thought nor Ibogaine should be tested. So I went offshore, I went ex-US, and I never intended to do that. And the University of Miami, amazing academic institution, and my chairman and, and others at the school allowed me to do this. So we went ex-US to collect the data because I couldn't give it up. But I didn't want to run a clinic ex-US. I wanted to be back in the US. So in 2010, I started a company, and we thought we would take Nor Ibogaine forward, and we would leave Ibogaine behind. Fast forward in 2017, at the height of the heroin epidemic, when the deaths were rising, I just had to, I couldn't take it anymore. And I said, you know what, I need to finish what I've started. And so I decided to leave the university and to go in and take over my company that I had founded. And I went in and did a reorganization in Demerex and decided that we would take Ibogaine and we'd have two jockeys two horses in the race and we'd take both drug products in and we would bring back Ibogaine. And that's what I did. And the, the fortunate thing is that I was able to find an investor. Howard Lutzoff had, had since died and we had some new IP pending around Ibogaine and some position and I and we were able to forge a joint venture with ATI Life Sciences. And then the question was, where do you do the clinical work? And, you know, for me, I, I'm in the U.S. of A, where, we, where Americans consume more drugs than any group in the world, as we all know on this call. And I wanted to, you know, bring this home. I wanted to bring this back to the U.S. But my colleagues at Atai decided that they wanted to go ex-U.S., collect seminal data on the safety of the drug and really put some of the concerns around Ibogaine to rest. And that's, of course, an important strategy because... People have taken Ibogaine. When I closed down St. Kitts, you know, there wasn't a place where people could go and get Ibogaine safe. And so what has happened is it pushed Ibogaine into this vast underground where you have pop-up clinics and people buying internet Ibogaine and got, you know, the purity unknown. And people administering Ibogaine who, have, who are not medical doctors. You know, opioid detoxification is a medical condition. You need to be under the care of a physician, a doctor, someone who understands the metabolic disruption that has occurred in your body. And, and people who abuse hard drugs damage their hearts, their livers. I mean, these are not healthy people. So, and then there's the psyche, you know, the psych comorbidity. So you, you really need to know what you're doing here. And of course, there's a lot of unethical people who sell Ibogaine. And so people have died. And there are, we at Demrex, with my colleague, my chief medical officer, Dr. Matthias Luz, have reviewed all the Ibogaine-related deaths, and there are 33 of them. 
And we've determined, you know, based on our review that and trying to give a causality assessment that the reason people die is precisely what I said, unsafe settings, taking, you know, toxic doses of the drug, having, you know, disruptions in their magnesium and their potassium and their blood levels and their enzymes and things that sets them up for toxicity. So that's a big hurdle and we, we need to beat that back. The other thing is that there is, you know, Ibogaine is a axe on the heart and there's Herg channels, which are potassium channels in the heart and Ibogaine in certain concentration will bind to those Herg channels. So will nor Ibogaine. So we're learning a lot about the therapeutic to toxic window. And we know unlike other psychedelic medicines like psilocybin, for example, which has a very wide therapeutic index, Ibogaine has, is going to be given in a more narrow therapeutic index. So it has to be done in a well-controlled medical environment by people who are trained and understand how to work with this drug. So that's what we're doing now. And the fortunate thing is our clinical trial is starting up. We have permission from MHRA in the UK to test Ibogaine in a good clinical trial sanctioned study. The protocol has been reviewed by the MHRA, by the regulators in the UK, and with their guidance and support and the support of the ethics review panels, we're able to get started. And so we're very excited about this. We're enrolling now and we're looking for volunteers in the first part of the study, which is going to be healthy volunteers who have had a past experience with a hallucinogen and they'll be part of the study to help us learn more about that safety window and then also to rule out any cardiovascular risk. Yeah, I think I tweeted your advert the other week. So I hope that had some impact on your recruitment. Thank you. With COVID, David, it's been, it's been slowly moving. Our recruitment has been slow as people are coming out of lockdown and, and don't really want to go you know, right back into a study. So yes, we do need to get the word out. We we need volunteers to help us advance this transformative therapy. Actually, and that's an interesting point you raised. So people listening to this, if they want to volunteer, how best to access that? Maybe you can give me a link. We can put it up on the website. And then if people want to volunteer for your trial, they can go to the link. So we'll do that at the end. Yes, I appreciate that. We'll give the link so that people can find out more about this. But uh, the site is Mac capital M, capital A, capital C, in Manchester, UK. And that is the early phase unit at Mac Manchester. Super. So you've achieved your goal. You're going into what you might call, you know, the first stages of development of, uh, of Ibogaine as a medicine. But let's just go, roll back a bit, because there are two really interesting aspects of, of Ibogaine. I mean, the first, I suppose, is the pharmacology, do we know anything more about it? I mean, it's still a bit of a mystery, isn't it? Because it's not a classical psychedelic, I don't think. Not at all. You know, I had a I had a wonderful experience in that, you know, when I was starting out, I got invited to go to Esalen, you know, back when Rick and some of the others were, were known, known people at Esalen, but nobody knew Deborah Mash. But I got invited and I met Sasha Shulgin. All right. <laughs> uh, Dr. Shulgin. And Dr. Shulgin, I asked him the same question, David. I said, what do we know about this molecule? Let's talk about the chemistry. Again, as a pharmacologist and someone interested in looking for druggable targets, you know, I wanted to know all about it too. So we sat down and he drew four boxes on a piece of paper and he said, Deborah, 
LSD and psilocybin in one, the tryptamines in the second box, the hallucinogenic amphetamines, MDMA, in the next box, and ibogaine in a box by itself. And that's what he taught me. And well, in answer to your question, so ibogaine acts on serotonin receptors, weak agonism, and it also acts on NMDA, right? So it's ketamine-like. So it's serotonin and glutamate on the ibogaine side. Then it gets converted to noribogaine, and noribogaine has a very interesting pharmacology. So noribogaine is a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, but an atypical serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It interacts with the transporter in a, a way distinct from other classical serotonin reuptake inhibitors that are, that are approved drug products. Ibogaine also acts on the site, but with much less potency. So it's the affinity constants are lower and it's less potent at the site. So noribogaine is very potent on the serotonin reuptake. And then it also is a partial kappa agonist. So it is acting, so it's kind of like, a, I call it a capitonin, kappa and serotonin. So ibogaine is acting on serotonin and also the glutamate pathway. And that's probably the visions. That's probably the visions, the visionary experience. Because we know when you give noribogaine as the sole agent, you don't have the hallucinations. You don't have the waking dream state that patients report when they take ibogaine. Oh, so the noribogaine has taken out the glutamate and replaced it with some caparagic effects. There's no glutamate affinity. The dwell time in the glutamate channel is negligible. We published that a long time ago. So there's no glutamate effect, but it's kappa. And then the little, you know, and to what extent this really fits in, we don't know yet, but there's also, Stan Glick did this work in looking at, at the uh, ibogaine conjurer 18-methoxychlorinardine, where he demonstrated an effect on the alpha-3, beta-4 neuronal nicotinic receptor. So that site is interesting because that's the habenula. And the habenula feeds back into the dopamine cell body fields and you can kind of think of it as putting the brakes on dopamine-mediated reinforcement. But there's also some growth factor effects. So there was an interesting set of papers put out by Dorit Ron, and she's at UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, at the Gallo Center. And she published a seminal paper looking at noribogaine and not 18MC, and she'd also published on ibogaine also, and demonstrated that glial-derived neurotrophic factor, GDNF, which we know is important for mediating the reset on dopamine neurons, is mediated through an action of noribogaine. So now we've got a perfect thing. You know, when you think about, when I think about addiction, obviously, you know, when you think about withdrawal and what the circuitry is in withdrawal and why you've got all these, you know, symptoms and, and protracted symptoms when you come off of drugs and alcohol, and all of the monomine-containing pathways express mu opioid receptors, but some of them are dopamine, some of them are serotonin. So you have these this neural circuit, and it seems to me that ibogaine and its active metabolite is uniquely hitting a cluster of targets, and it's this polypharmacy effect that's bringing about this rapid reset. That's very interesting. So I've often wondered whether 
I think it got a bad rap because it was being used in withdrawal, which is obviously the most dangerous time because people can die in withdrawal. You know, the, the cardiac effects, particularly of things like heroin and withdrawal, can be profound. Do you think it has to be given in withdrawal? Do you think it might work if people have been withdrawn in, a, in another way and then could go into an Ibogaine session where there's less risk? What do you think in terms of the how this might be rolled out clinically? I think that's an excellent idea that, you know, Ibogaine could be given at a post as a post for post-withdrawal management. However, if you think about, David, how are we with how are we handling detoxification today? How do we do that? How do we, you know, get people off of drugs? And you even think about giving them an antagonist like naltrexone, which is beneficial post-detoxification. If you try to taper right now, the only approved molecules for this, the only approved drugs are two of them. You've got methadone taper, which is approved. Buprenorphine is used off-label as a taper. And then clonidine is used that alpha adrenergic clonidine is used off-label, and lefexidine was approved in 2018 for withdrawal management, non-opioid. That's it. And so many people do not complete successful detox. Yeah, I can see what you're saying, yeah. This is a problem. Yeah. This is a problem. Mm. So, you know, it'd be interesting. Your point is very good. You know, you could give a lower dose, for example. You could imagine giving a lower dose of ibogaine in the setting of detoxification, much like rexanolone is used under full medical monitor for a postpartum depression, you know, the new molecule Zolreso yeah, yeah. that came out of NIMH for the GABA, you know, the GABA reset. So you kind of think of ibogaine as the glutamate serotonin reset, and then you, as compared to uh, rexanolone and Zolreso. So you do that under medical, you know, full medical monitor inpatient setting and you could give a lower dose of ibogaine very good and then let them start on their you know road to recovery and then come back in 30 days when things are stabilized and and do a repeat dose higher dose where you use it in a therapeutic way for psychotherapy in other words yeah absolutely because i mean the problem you know let's not beat about the bush the problem with ibogaine have been those deaths and and there are many many people who are absolutely terrified of it and and some people would say, well, Deborah, you know, you, you've taken on an insurmountable burden to sort of, because you're carrying that, that legacy and you're trying to get this drug, you know, over that terrible historical burden and into the clinic and anything you could do to minimize. No, David, you know, you know, I think about this out. Absolutely. I think about this all the time. And all I can tell you is, you know, we, we had 277 Ibogaine patients go through St. Kitts. We had not one death, not one hospitalization, not one arrhythmia. And believe me, <laughs> when you go back and you, you know, we had external people go through the charts and review our data, you know, really looking at this because we, you know, we needed to have that kind of independent review of those charts. And originally when I started out, we had halter monitors on the patients. We were, I was worried about this. I mean, you know, lots off had had a death and, you know, we were keenly aware of this. So I do believe that Ibogaine can be given safely. I, I do believe that, you know, and I believe the data is there, the clinical data is there to support it. You have to know what you're doing and you have to have doctors who can manage things. I mean, there are, there are protocols to manage. You know, we've done it. 
and we know how to do it and we can train others to do it. So I think that's going to be the hurdle for us is to demonstrate that to the regulators. And, you know, is Ibogaine, other psychedelics are being used for, you know, therapy, right? So many people who, who abuse drugs and alcohol are self-medicating as you as a psychiatrist know this very well and better than me, you know, other comorbidities like major depressive disorder, trauma, you know, they're, they're suffering from, I had a wonderful conversation with Dr. Rachel Yehuda recently, and, you know, she talked about trauma and addiction and, oh yes, <laughs> people are self-medicating those inner wounds. And so I think that we will get, we will get past this hurdle. We will demonstrate that Ibogaine can be given safely in a medical setting. And then the ability to, you know, even use, think about this, if you detoxify with Ibogaine, and it is an adjunct to psychotherapy, there's no doubt about it. When I was telling my counselors, we had a addictionologists and therapists with us in St. Kitts and psychiatrists and the whole, you know, the whole gamut, practitioners. And I said, okay, you know, the pharmacologist walks in, we're not giving Ibogaine, we're going to, we're going to develop nor Ibogaine. And they knew noridogain was didn't have the oneric effects of the ibogaine. And they said, no, no, Dr. Mash, you can't do that. And, you know, David, I, I tell this story, you know, I say pre-contemplative, contemplative, ready for change. That was the thing about ibogaine. It was so dramatic. Not only was the withdrawal management dramatic and that it was a gentle detox and that we were able to, you know, deliver people back into the treatment, you know, to the little treatment community and let them work with their counselors the psychiatrist and the therapist, but the fact was that they were intractable users. These were people who came to St. Kitts who failed the standard of care. They had tried detox many times, yeah, many times, and they were just able to the the clarity of uh, the clarity of you know I've got to change it up. I've got to change my life now. Yeah, it's very reminiscent of what we see in our depression studies where they. People often report that you know psychedelics reset the brain. It's like they defrag or they you know reformat the computer. You go back to your base state, and so you've sort of wiped, wiped the slate clean. And it is it is very compelling, and it, and it's also I think it's kind of credible, given that we now know that disorders like addiction and depression that they're they're system disorders. You know, they're disorganizations of complex brain networks, and to expect perhaps just a single receptor targeting drug to completely disrupt something as massive and as overlearned as, as addiction may be too naive. And, you know, this new model that you, know, you actually disrupt the whole process, I think is very exciting. And, well, I wish you, I wish you well, because of Transformative neuroscience to the area that you have pioneered. Well, I was going to say, you've been going for longer than us, but it would be really, I mean, really looking forward to working with you to look at those brain images under Ive again and see whether we can look at the, the disruption of those pathways and maybe even image recovery. That would be such a lovely thing to do. Well, we, we are definitely going to do that together. And the collaboration with you and your team, you know, you've contributed some of, you know, the most important findings to the field. And to have you look at, you know, to study the EEGs, study the images of the brain and to be able to help us identify that circuitry. I mean, I've lived for this. To be able to image, if I begin can give us a window onto the brain and to the addiction circuitry, 
and how to heal that and reset those loops, reboot that computer. That's fundamental neuroscience at its best. Undoubtedly. Well, Deborah, thank you very much for joining me in this podcast. And I have to say, you know, hearing your story, it is remarkable. And you've got an enormous uh, will and enormous resolution. And if anyone's going to bring Ibogaine to the clinic, it's going to be you. So I wish you well. I'm sure all the listeners wish you well. And when you get the license, come back on and we'll celebrate. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. All right, David. Thank you so much. And thank you to your listeners. Well, that's the end of this episode of the Drug Science Podcast. Thank you for listening. But before you go, I would just like to share with you a question from our Drug Science community members. Recently, we recorded a very special podcast episode in which we invited all of our premium and philanthropic community members to ask me anything they like. Their questions were so good, I thought we should include one or two of them at the end of every podcast episode. So please enjoy this new segment of the show. Apologies for the audio quality as we recorded the session over Zoom. Hopefully they're vaguely relevant to what we've been discussing. And if you want to ask me anything, perhaps we could do an Ask David Anything Part 2. Enjoy. Another question from Peter. And uh, Peter would like to know that there seems to be a bit of citizen science going on at the moment, uh, microdosing. Mm. And he thinks it's similar to the early days of CBD. And do you yeah. see microdosing psychedelics going the same way as CBD? So somewhat of a free-for-all with lots of different products available, like tinctures, vapes, etc. Or do you think microdosing will be a much more regulated market with dispensaries, practitioners, or maybe even stay illicit? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Yeah, so... You know, I'm a bit, always a bit embarrassed to talk to people in microdose because everything we've done shows it doesn't work. But that's not entirely true. That's not entirely true. So we wrote this huge review a couple of years ago trying to look at the evidence, and we couldn't really find any evidence then. And then we, were, we did this mass, well, very big study for microdosing, but of LSD microdosing, mostly LSD microdosing, citizen science, self-blinding. And it showed microdosing works. But so does placebo, if you think placebo is microdose. So the effect is largely a placebo effect. That doesn't mean it doesn't work, of course. <laughs> but it does mean you couldn't license it because there's a, a lot of resistance to licensing placebo. And we don't, we're not sure if you license placebo, would actually work. So what's going to happen to microdosing? I, I, the answer is I don't know. I think because you've got to do it daily or two or three times a week, the clinical trials are way more complicated, strangely, than doing the trip-based therapy because trip-based therapy is just, you know, for compass, it's just one trip and then everything else is back to normal. Whereas microdosing, you know, got to come in and have it administered three times a week and say, you know, and be around in a safe setting just in case something weird happens because it's a very dangerous drug. So, it's a bit... so I think it's four years ago now, we got permission to do LSD microdosing, but they insisted every single dose had to be given in hospital. And for six weeks, for three times a week for six weeks, we couldn't afford the hospital beds, so we never did it. So I think, you know, there's a, it won't be like microdosing CBD because CBD is legal. If psychedelics became decriminalized, then I think there will be probably quite a lot of black market microdosing. But uh, whether, I don't know, I'm, I suspect, I have a fear that psychedelic microdosing may never ever be easily available unless we actually completely reform the whole, all of the drug laws and, and have these drugs available in pharmacies, which I would support, but that's kind of a few steps beyond where we are at present. <laughs>